0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today we're exploring some of the science behind obstructive sleep apnea with researcher and clinician Dr. Alan Pack. Dr. Pack is editor-in-chief of the journal Sleep and the John McClough Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the founding director of the Center for Sleep and Circadian Neurobiology and the Division of Sleep Medicine at Penn. Dr. Pack's research focuses on the genetics of sleep and sleep disorders. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Pack.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So we want to talk today about your research into OSA phenotyping and how it may help us to provide more personalized treatment for our patients. So what exactly is OSA phenotyping?
1: Yeah, I know. I think the concept that we need to get across is the whole idea that sleep apnea is a very heterogeneous disorder. And and if you think about it that way, not every patient's identical, they have different symptoms, they have different consequences and so on. And And the idea is that you, you need to understand that heterogeneity, that people are different. And you need to understand it in multiple dimensions. And I mentioned the symptom dimension, people have different symptoms, people have different clinical presentations, people have different risk factors for the disease, and people have different consequences, and that that can be assessed in terms of different physiology, different molecular changes, and so on. So, the whole idea is that it's heterogeneous, and you're going to try to understand the heterogeneity or the end of phenotypes, but you're going to try to understand it in multiple dimensions.
0: So how exactly do we accomplish this? I mean, how do you phenotype a patient?
1: Well, the, what you need to do is you, you need to start by then how are they different, right? And then what is the relevance of these differences? Uh, and people have looked at that in, 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 in different ways, right? So, so the, the, you need to assemble a very large group of people, patients with a lot of information. And then, and then typically, you don't assume that you know what the differences are. You let the data speak for itself. And, and what you do is things like cluster analysis and you say other different subgroups here. And, and, and what cluster analysis identifies is it identifies people who they are they're quite close together, but they're very different from the next group. And so you're trying to minimize the differences within a cluster and mm. maximize the differences between clusters. Now you can do that with physiological measures. You can do that with symptoms. You can do that with molecular measures. And, and that's, that's, what, and then once you've established these differences and the relevance, then you can translate the findings you have and translate them into the clinic so that you say, I'm giving you a tool to work out which particular subtype of sleep apnea you're working on. So it's, it's qu- the, the research is broad, trying to identify subtypes. Once you identify the subtypes and you come up with measures of them, then you want to translate that into the clinic.
0: Oh, So, so outline for me, what are the major OSA phenotypes?
1: Well, so people would, would look at it in different ways, okay? So the thing that we've, we've basically focused on a lot is symptom subtypes and we started that, we published this in 2014, we had developed what's called the Icelandic sleep apnea cohort in Iceland uh, with our good friend Thorin Gislas and we had about 900 people, something like that, where we had very extensive questionnaires and then when we did the cluster analysis, what we did is we found there were three distinct subtypes. And the subtypes were people who had major complaint was disturbed sleep with normal at scores, a group of people who were minimally symptomatic, they, they woke up feeling refreshed, they weren't sleepy, even though they had you know significant sleep apnea. And then there was a group of people who were excessively sleepy. Hmm. Now, the excessively sleepy group had a very high at 15.6. Oh, wow. It was... In the narcolepsy range, they, they fell asleep driving and so on. That's what you think of with sleep apnea, an excessively sleepy person. That was only 44% of the total. And you oh had these three very distinct subtypes. And then the question is, why? why? Why is that? How did they benefit from treatment? Did they benefit differentially? And, and as the relevance of these so-called subtypes, symptomatic subtypes, in terms of other consequences. The first thing we did is, so we found these three subtypes, and, and I should point out it wasn't explained by severity of disease. They had, they, they had severe sleep apnea, their AHIs were identical, and the three different subtypes are almost identical. It wasn't explained by obesity, they, they were all in the 33 to 34 range, and so it wasn't explained by obesity, oh, wow. and it wasn't explained by sleep apnea. It was something that you responded differently to the same challenge, or the same disease and you responded from a symptomatic point of view in a different way. And and then the you know, the question then is, okay, you find them in Iceland, is can you replicate that? And that's very important. So that you 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 end up showing that you know this is pretty reliable. If I can do it in other areas, it's now been replicated by us both in 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 a large clinical cohort that we collected internationally. It's replicated by us in a Korean genomic cohort, a population cohort. It was replicated by us in the Sleep Heart Health Study. The Canadian National Biobank replicated it. That was independent of us. It was replicated in the. The Hispanic study in the US, it was replicated in a clinical cohort in Chile and a clinical cohort in France. Now, having said they were replicated the, the, the optimal number of clusters varied. The, the, the Iceland thing was three distinct clusters. In some places, we found four, some places we found five. For example, in the sleep heart health study, we found the same basic three as Iceland, but we found another group that had moderate sleepiness. Mm. Uh, and, and so the, the, th- the, th- the same three basic ones were always there. And we're developing a tool that we can give clinicians that they can then assign people into one of these three distinct subtypes. Uh, so, so it's been pretty well replicated, and it's pretty clear that you have these these distinct um, these distinct symptomatic subtypes. Now, the idea that people could have sleep apnea and not be sleepy is not new, right? In fact, in the original Terry Young classic paper, the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort paper. Published in the New England Journal in 1993, she distinguished there between what she called sleep apnea, you know, with an AHI over 15, whatever it was, and what she called sleep apnea syndrome, where you had the AHI and you were sleepy. So that was recognized very early on in her field that there were people out there in the population you could find who had sleep, sleep disorder breathing, but they weren't symptomatic. Uh, the, the fact that you can present with insomnia, that's also been recognized. Right. We'll talk about comorbid insomnia with sleep apnea. So so, the, so the symptom cluster idea basically gives it a framework that you can assign people into these different classes and you can think about it. Now, if you look at treatment benefit from the point of view of symptoms, right, it's not surprising the minimally symptomatic group don't benefit that much uh, it's still significant, uh, the, the net worth is normal, it's like seven. Mm. They have a slight reduction, a significant reduction, uh, but but the changes are very small, whereas in the excessively sleepy group, on CPAP they, they go from 15.6 to 10 or something like that, and they got a high reduction in net worth. And so the symptomatic benefit varies between the groups. The other thing that we did is we asked the question, uh, is there other differences between these people and uh, these different symptoms sometimes? And we looked at the Sleep Heart Health Study, where, as you know, you have cardiovascular outcome data. And what we were able to show in that was that it was excessively sleepy group that had the, the, cardiova- the, the cardiovascular risk. There was no increased cardiovascular risk in the insomnia group or, or in the minimally symptomatic group. It was only in the excessively sleepy group, and that's very important because the excessively sleepy people uh, were, were were excluded, as you know, from the recent large randomized trials.
0: Well, that's exactly it, right? The HRQ report, um, you know, they looked at the trials that excluded sleepy people.
1: Right. Oh no, absolutely, and and, and you know, and you know, and, and it's hotly debated about a you know, was that appropriate, and B, you know, how do you deal with it? Uh, So, the data we have in the Sleep Heart Health Study said it was only the excessively sleepy people that had the increased cardiovascular risk. Now, again, we're not the first group of people ever to say that. Uh, You know, there's this previous paper by Kapoor who showed that in the Sleep Heart Health Study, the association between sleep disorder, breathing, and hypertension was only found in sleepy people. It wasn't present in non-sleepy. That's one thing. Vernon Summers did a study where he got people, he studied them, and he, he did sleep studies one month after they'd had an MI, and then he followed them over time. The Most of them, almost all of them, were not treated. And what he found was that there was a difference in recurrent reinfarction rates in the people who were excessively sleepy compared to those who weren't. Well, so the oh, same idea is there, so it's out there uh, in other areas. The fact that the excessively sleepy subtype is an increased risk for, for cardiovascular events was replicated in the Chilean study, uh, Labarca study that was published recently in chess. It was not replicated in the French study that came out in the Blue Journal. Uh, they, they did not find that in the excessively sleepy, but you know, as they acknowledged, and we wrote a letter, I mean, it's a bit challenging in clinical cohorts because you know there's there's referral bias. You don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe symptomatic people who people thought had a cardiovascular risk, they snored, they got a sleep study. So 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 you know so so I don't think it excludes that. And I think the majority of the evidence, both in our own work and in our previous work, is excessive sleepiness is like a symptomatic biomarker, if you like, uh, for 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 cardiovascular risk. Now, the, the reason they were excluded in the, these, these clinical trials is a couple of things. So the first thing is that they, they took the view it was unethical. IRBs take the view it's unethical, uh, some IRBs do, to, to, to randomize people into no treatment for three years that are excessively sleepy, they have an increased risk of car crashes and so on. Uh, Some people like uh, uh, Sanjay Patel have argued it's not unethical, you can do that. Uh, Even if it's ethical, uh, the question is, is it feasible? I mean, if you talk to a patient who's very symptomatic and you say, look, I'd like you to go into this clinical trial, you may not get treated for three years, are you going to agree? And so, so many patients are not going to agree, or their physicians are not going to agree. So it's not, so it's not a question just of ethics; it's a question of feasibility. Mm. And in the Apple study, which was six months, remember to do cardiovascular outcomes, you're probably talking three, five years. The Apple study was six months, and they could not get people recruited into no treatment in the Apple study from sleep practices, it just didn't happen. And they had to recruit people from the population. And and what happened was, you know, 78% of the people in the Apple study were recruited from advertisements in the general population. Oh, wow, that's high. Right, no, I mean, that was the only way they could get it done. And, and the problem with that is what we know, not surprisingly, is that these subtypes exist in clinical cohorts, they exist in, in population cohorts, but the prevalence of the, 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 the minimally symptomatic group is higher in population-based cohorts. So you can recruit people like that. They snore, they may be a witnessed apneas; they're not that symptomatic. They're willing to go into these clinical trials, uh, and 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 that's the issue. So, so, so basically, what happened is the SAFE study excluded people who had a had Etworth's over fifteen. But even though that that was the, the you could go in if you had an worth of twelve or something like that. The average worst score in the SAFE study, I think, was seven and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. The Spanish study in the myocardial infarctions excluded people. But that was over 10, and did the Ricasa study. So all of these studies excluded excessively sleepy people. And in fact, we just published a paper, it just came out in sleep uh, with our colleagues in Western Australia, uh, where we looked at the consecutive patients in the, the so-called Western Australia sleep health cohort uh, with Bijan Singh and Nigel McArdle, and, and they recruited every patient for a period of years into this cohort. And we could look at that cohort and we could say, what percentage of patients that they had in that cohort would have qualified for these these large randomized trials? And the answer is somewhere around 5 or 10%. Oh, so, wow. So So most of the patients... The patients that were in these trials are not the patients that we see clinically. And it's very important to, to, to realize that, that these trials do not prove that sleep apnea does not benefit cardiovascular disease. What it proves is, is that if you take people who are minimally symptomatic and, and, and you do, you randomize into CPAP, and as a result, they are very low CPAP adherence.
0: Right.
1: Uh, I mean, the adherence in these trials was terrible. Uh, and people who are only partially treated or asymptomatic don't benefit. That's what these trials, that's the question these trials answer. They do not answer the question as to whether the patients we see clinically who are excessively sleepy uh, are going to benefit from CPAP in terms of cardiovascular risk. The answer to that is unknown.
0: So then can phenotypes change over time?
1: Well, that's a great question. We don't know that, and that's a weakness of the thing. I mean, we can certainly look at that in the Sleep Heart Health Study because most of them were not treated, and that's something we plan to do to look and see if you're a you're an an asymptomatic person now, and you're back in ten years, are you still an asymptomatic person? We don't know the answer to that, but that's very very that's a very important question. And it's something we need to we, we need to determine. Uh, we certainly across sanctionary we've shown we is, we can replicate it, uh, and certainly we've shown the differential benefit in treatment, which you know, and we talked about the cardiovascular risk, but whether whether the, the symptoms sometimes can vary over time is, is still an open question.
0: So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how phenotyping can help us provide personalized treatment. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. It's time to go back to sleep at Sleep 2022. The annual meeting of the Associated Professional Sleep Societies is returning in person June 4th through 8th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Register, view the preliminary program and learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Pack, researcher, clinician, and editor in chief of the journal Sleep. So tell me about your work in Iceland. I mean, why Iceland?
1: Well, no, the, the The reason we got to Iceland was I'm very interested in the genetics, right? And I w- I was reading the, these papers in science, and because you know at that time you were doing family-based linkage studies, and and they they could they had DNA and loads of people in Iceland, and they could trace them all the way back to like the 11th century. Right? Oh, wow. <laughs> so they, they, they had all the marriage records, they put them into databases, they built what they called a genealogy. And a company got going there called Deco Genetics that was going to take advantage of that. And and then the, the, the genetic strategy changed to genome-wide association study. It, it's got a big advantage for for clinical research and particularly for genetic research and sleep apnea. Iceland it's not a big country. I mean, there's about 380,000 people living live in Iceland. Three quarters of them live in the capital city, Reykjavik. Oh, wow. Uh, and they, they, they do uh, they do home studies in five different places around the island. And then if you're found to moderate to severe sleep apnea in AHI over 15, uh, and you want to go in CPAP, power, you go and see power, you need to go to Reykjavik and meet Dr. Gislason and his team at the University of Iceland Hospital. He's the only person who can prescribe CPAP in Iceland. So it means that every single person in Iceland who's gone on CPAP sees Dr. Gislason and you capture the whole country essentially. And Dr. Gislason was trained, as a he got a PhD in epidemiology from Sweden. As far as he's concerned, every patient he sees is a research subject. <laughs> and, 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 and they all fill out these extensive questionnaires we've built databases with that we get the sleep study data there's a the genetic data and, and and so on and and the, the Icelandic population are very very supportive of research you don't have to reimburse them for conducting research that's not part of their culture and you get participation rates of over 90 percent oh wow and then the other thing you have is you have a single EHR for the whole country. So you contract these people, what happened to them, you do the EHR because it's a kind of nationalized health system and so on. So there's substantial advantages to, and we've been NIH grants now in Iceland for over 10 years, and we've built a very uh, collaborative program with Dr. Gislas, and we published a large number of papers together, and we're still continuing to do that. So it's been a very productive collaboration.
0: So you mentioned your clinical tool that you are developing to identify these OSA phenotypes. Right. So, so does this help us figure out who needs treatment and what kind of treatment? You know, like patients who maybe have high loop gain, should they not use an oral appliance?
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a whole different story. So, so our, our thing would be whether people are going to benefit. I mean, you're right. We need to look at the stability of the of these symptoms subtypes and find out if you switch. Uh, if you switch, then you know you would, you would need to treat people. Uh, if it turns out that the the, the, the is symptomatic is a very stable thing, there's a real question. If they're not going to benefit a lot from, from a symptomatic point of view, and they're not going to benefit from a cardiovascular point of view, there's a real question as to whether they need treated. Some people would argue they don't. What what you're getting at though is you're getting at the other way to think about endophenotypes, and this is the Andrew Wellman work with Scott Sands and Danny Ecker, and and what they 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 basically have pushed the idea that there's different physiological risk factors. There's four fat, four risk factors. That there's what you mentioned, high loop gain. That there's. Uh, how collapsible the upper airway is. There's arousal threshold. How rapidly you wake up and CO2 levels go up. You know you have a high arousal threshold a lower arousal threshold, and then the final one is the muscle responsiveness. There's any there's negative pressure builds up in the upper airway if you if you have apnea, and, and that stimulates a reflex that increases activity of upper di- di- airway dilator muscles. So there are these four different. So called endophenotypes, physiological phenotypes. Now, when they initially described them, they did very complicated protocols, right? So they would have the so called CPAP drops. You'd have a catheter down there measuring the pressure in the upper airway. You'd have an EMG measuring Mm. process activity and so on. And they were able to document. You know it's hard to do in controls because you need you need events and, and drop the CPAP pressure, and and then they went from that, which was a fairly cumbersome. It was a research thing; that had never been applied clinically. <laughs> they went from that to um, the argument that, that you could extract the data from from sleep study regular sleep study data. You can extract these four basic things, and that's where the story gets a little murky. Um, you know the the, it's ve- the the extraction the way it works is is based on a very simple model of ventilated control and and then you basically parameterize the model and you end up being able to estimate the, these four different variables, right? Mm. And, and then the published papers—if you've indicated high loop gain and intraoral devices and so on—now uh, the, there are people like me who say it's a bit—it's premature. I mean, I just think it's a very interesting idea. It's premature, and, and here's why I believe that. First of all, Magda Yunus has written an article in *Clinics in Chest Medicine* saying, "Look, th- th- this model that's been used is pretty primitive." Is making a lot of assumptions, and some of them are untenable. Mm -hmm. You know, Magde's shown, for example, that arousal is not a single phenomenon. You get different intensities of arousal. And as you know, he's able to estimate intensity of arousal from a scale scale of one to nine. Some people tend to have very intense arousals, some people not. And that's not taken care of in the model. So the model treats arousals as as a single entity. Uh, and it's not, there's variation in intensity, that's the first thing. So there's questions about the, 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 the simplicity of the model. The second concern is that the reliability of these estimates has not really been shown. I think it's premature to be applying them. We need to know that if I study you tonight, and I show you're someday with a high loop gain, if I study in a week or two weeks, you're still someday with a high loop gain. How reliable are these measures? Right. But I think that's very important before we start applying it clinically. And then thirdly, we should be able to validate them, right? I mean, you can measure arousal threshold in other ways. You can measure loop gain in other ways. And we should show that the measures we're getting from these techniques Line up. There's a very good agreement between that and the gold standard measures. So I argue with it with all that team. I mean, I ask them almost when they present. You know, how's your reliability data going? How's the validation going? And I do think that's really important. While while that's going on, the. The Knox, Knox, is, Knox Medical in Iceland, nothing to do with me, but they, the company in Iceland that makes the sleep study equipment, they've licensed that technology, and they're working on it. And one of the things they pointed out is that the, the system, the, the whole idea falls apart if people open their mouths, right? So, if you you're basically looking at nasal pressure. The input to the to the model is nasal pressure signals. That's a ventilatory measure essentially. And, and if you open your mouth, you know, it's not going to work. It goes, yeah, right. And and they actually had a, a presentation in Rome last week at the Rome World Sleep Meeting, where where they're showing that they can get a ventilatory measure from well applied inductance pneumography belts. They're working on the belt signal. And trying to say we can overcome that problem mm-hmm. with mouth opening. So, so my view of the of the, of, the, of the, that whole world is is very interesting. I think there's there's potential in it, but they got they got to address is the model too simple? They got to address the reliability. They got to address some of the technological challenges, and they should show the validation. And I believe that any any conclusion that that we should be using this. Uh, at the moment clinically is premature. I think we've got to get that basic information down. We know we're dealing with reliable measures. We know that they measure what we think they measure, and, and then we can start thinking about applying them chronically. Now, what Knox has made available, uh, but it's only if you use Knox equipment. That's a bit of a challenge, right? So <laughs> Knox has built a whole system that, if you are you use Knox equipment, you can upload your data into a website, and it will spit out these measures for you. So I think you know, we just got ahead of ourselves, right? (laughs) At least that's my view. I think it's interesting, uh, but I don't think we're at a point that you can personalize therapy based on this. I believe we've got to do a lot more homework.
0: Well, and so that's interesting because we had chatted about personalized medicine and personomics and the search for sleep-related biomarkers. And so when we talk about biomarkers, is this sort of the idea of identifying people with sleep apnea or is it a way to follow it over time? I mean, what is the purpose of them?
1: Right, no, I I, no, I think that's a, that's a great question. So I think one of, the, one of the things is that we've now got a tremendous different technologies, and we're happy to talk about that, to identify different approaches to assessing things in blood that could be potential biomarkers. And then the question is, what's the use cases? There was a workshop that was conducted, it's published in Sleep actually. Janet Mullington's the first author uh, between the the NHLBI, the National Heart Long Blood Institute NIH and the Sleep Research Society, and it talks about the use cases, right? And and basically there's there's three different use cases that you can think about. So the first thing would be, could you get a blood test? to assess who's likely to have sleep apnea, right? Could I do a routine blood test and say, yeah, you're likely to have sleep apnea, and you would move down that path. So that's the first use case. It's in case identification. The second use case is really following efficacy of therapy, right? Uh, I mean, we published a paper a number of years ago with Teddy Weaver looking at hours of CPAP use in the x-axis. On the y-axis, the percent of people who went from being sleepy to not being sleepy. And what you found is you found people at three hours, it wasn't huge, but 30% of people normalized in three hours of therapy. At the other end, there was a group of people who even with seven hours, they didn't normalize. Mm. So so, so it's pretty clear that people respond to may respond to CPAP in different ways. And, and at the moment, we look at hours of use and we tend to think about it as a you know, the, the same the same hours of use. And that's likely to vary. Some people may do very well on, on low numbers and some people may need very high numbers to do well. And so that's the second use case. Could you come up with a, a thing like a hemoglobin A1C mm-hmm. uh, to set and, and you've got an objective measure of efficacy of therapy that you could apply? So that's the second use case. The third use case would be, can you use a prognostica? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, and there are papers out there you know from the hypertension literature of the from that resistant hypertension trial in, in 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 Spain where they took the high responders and the non responders and showed there were different biomarkers in the two groups so could could you use the information to predict who's going to show a big benefit from blood pressure could you do it to predict who's going to get increased diabetes risk could you do it to predict who's going to get cardiovascular events and so the third the third use case case is prognostication. So, it's case identification, assessment of efficacy of therapy, and prognostic information. And all of them, I think, are possible, and what we're going to need is much larger studies than the ones that have been done currently, but the technology is out there uh, to be able to assess the so-called, all the different omics. And, and, and in the current release, it just got released last, last December in the new National Plan for Sleep Research, the number one priority is developing bio, for sleep research is developing right. biomarkers for sleep disorders.
0: So, you know, we've had a lot of discussion about the pitfalls of the AHI. So what do you think the future of sleep medicine looks like? I mean, you've kind of hit on the ORP. Right. What does it look like to you?
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think the poor AHI, because, I mean, I think the, the European report about the AHI was pretty negative, okay? Um, and and the, the Sleep Research Society one, the one the Mahocha was the first author on, is a more balanced report. I mean, the AHI makes intuitive sense. I mean, you're talking about a disorder where you believe people stop breathing or their breathing declines during sleep. So measuring the number of times that happens is quite relevant, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the AHI has clinical relevance. The fact that, now the argument against it is, well, it doesn't really predict the outcomes. But as I've indicated, if sleep disorder breathing is very heterogeneous and some mm. people don't have outcomes, why sure. would AHI be that predictive, right? True. So I, I think we've got to think about that, that there's no single measure going to come up that's going to predict stuff. Now, having said that, People are now working on new metrics, and I think this is an exciting area. Uh, new metrics that you can obtain from the sleep study. Uh, the ORP is one. I'll talk about that in a minute. And and then there's two there's two metrics that are pushed to be re- related to cardiovascular risk, so-called hypoxic burden. You, you look at the, the total amount of hypoxic drops and the areas and so on and the, and the curves across the night, and you come up with total hypoxic burden. And, and, and in the sleep heart Health and the Mr. Oz study, uh, hypoxic burden is associated with cardiovascular mortality. So, that's one measure that has some real potential. A second measure is, is, the, uh, is the heart rate response, uh, either to arousal. Or the heart rate response to events. Uh, what, what happens is people, when they have an arousal, you know, the heart rate goes up. But the magnitude of the increase in heart rate, even at a fixed intensity of arousal, varies between people. It's sort of a measure of sympathetic, right? You, you, you have an event, you, you, you have an arousal, you've got a sympathetic surge and your heart rate goes up. And that varies between people. We did a study with that, in in the twin study we did, we showed it was very reproducible from night to night, but it varied between people. And we also showed because it was twins, it was heritable. So there's genes involved in determining the heart rate response to arousal. And there's a recent paper showing the heart rate response to arousal in non-sleepy people. Again, it was done in the Sleep Heart Health in Mr. Oz, I think, and this is Ali, and he showed that there was a relationship between heart rate response to arousal and cardiovascular events, and also cardiovascular mortality. But when he did the overall, but when he did the analysis and divided people into sleepy people and non-sleepy people, it was only found in the non-sleepy. And then because the sleepy people, or got big riches because they're sleepy. Uh, so, So there's these two very interesting metrics coming along. And again, I don't think we should start you know, throwing every AHI out the door and getting rid of all the great science we've done using the AHI and the epidemiology. We need to think about it carefully. We need to be thoughtful about what we're doing, constructive, and and, and not just jumping around and I do think that we again we need more data how can, can you calculate these metrics easily how reliable are they all of the basic stuff we just talked about and then we need to look at it in not only in in population-based cohorts but in clinical cohorts so there's a good deal of work to be done to establish them the ORP' it's a it's a terrible name actually. <laughs> 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 Mike, the Eunice come up with it? Not, I mean, it's a very clever thing, but I'm not sure it's branded that well. The odds ratio product. You say to people, what do you study? Odds ratio product. How would you know that's has got to do with sleep? But, but it's, it's a very clever measure. It's a continuous measure of sleep quality, right? I mean, it's every three seconds, and the scale is like, what, zero to four, something like that. And and you the lower the number, the, the deeper the sleep. And so you can, I mean, it's not just looking at delta power, it's looking at all the different bands simultaneously. And it's giving you a measure of sleep quality and, and the high numbers, you, you, you get low sleep quality, the low numbers, you get deep sleep and you can look at it across the night and, it, and it's, it's really good. And again, we've done studies in the twins with that. Uh, you can see that it varies between people. Even if you, you, you look at standard sleep staging, you find people with deeper, you know, N3 compared to other people. Again, it's heritable. It tends to be, be you know, an individual response. Uh, So, it's a very, very cool measure that gives us a way of objectively measuring sleep quality. We've applied that technology with Magdi to this question of the symptom subtypes. We tried to say, was it the case that the symptom subtypes had differences in the quality of their sleep, right? And could, could we define that? And when we did that, what we found was, well, you know, it's not surprising, I suppose, was that the, the group that was different was the disturbed or the insomnia group. They had poorer sleep quality in every stage of sleep. Uh, they, they, they had poor quality sleep across the night. They weren't that sleepy during the day. We did not find differences at the moment in what we looked at between the minimally symptomatic and the excessively sleepy group. Mm-hmm. But certainly the disturbed sleep group were a group of people with sleep apnea who had uh, poor sleep quality. Now, some of them, the sleep, the insomnia is due to the sleep apnea right? I mean, they're waking up because they get bent and they wake up and they're poor sleep quality. And on CPAP, their insomnia goes away. Other ones, you know, they have insomnia and it just happens to be there along with the sleep apnea and it doesn't improve with with CPAP. So I think the ORP is another very, very helpful measure in in terms of thinking about sleep quality. It gets us beyond the traditional staging uh, uh, of sleep and, and acknowledges the fact that that misses you know, another dimension, which is the quality of that particular stage.
0: No, you're exactly right. I'm wondering how your um, how your tool is going to fit into all of this.
1: Well, you're right. And I, I think what we're, we, you know, I think what's going to happen here is you're going to have a number of different tools. You're going to have a tool that allows you to define them into a symptom subtype, and that might be helpful in terms of the way you're thinking about it. We're hoping that by an app or something. It's, the app worth on is not sufficient. Right. I mean, you right. people who they may have normal at but they're still complaining of feeling sleepy several times a week. So it, it takes more than just the at worst. The at worst of the biggest single contributor to, to the to the thing. Right. We've got a letter just come out in chess pointing that out. Uh, but it's going to take, you know, more than just the at worst to do it. And then you define these different symptoms sometimes. I think where we're going to be going is we've got these new tools coming along that we can analyze the PSG from, and it's going to provide a lot more information. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges, and I do, I, I brought this up at the at the Rome meeting where they, they had a they had a symposium on ORP. The the ORP is now owned by Cerebra. Right, so if you want to get ORP, right. you have to get cerebral equipment. If you want to get the Andrew Wellman physiological phenotypes, you need to get bath <laughs> equipment. It's not a good place. True, to be. you know the, the 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 new measures are owned by somebody, and you have to <laughs> use their equipment. It's not a good place to be. And and, and Ali, you know, he he's I don't think he'll be successful, but he's trying to patent the hypoxic burden. No, I don't think that's going to happen because they're published. So how can you patent someone that's already in the public domain? But, but, but that's what's happening. These tools, these new exciting tools tend to be patented, they tend to be it's given to companies for license income, and and it's not going to be a great place for our field to be. That we, the, the the new tools that can move us forward, you, mm. you have to be in one equipment to get that, you have to be in another equipment to get this. And I do I do think the academy needs to think about that. How to move, move beyond that? Because it's mm. it's not helpful.
0: So any final thoughts?
1: No, I I think my final thoughts would be. That this is a very exciting time uh, to be in this. Okay, I think the ideas that are being pushed here on sleep apnea, in terms of different symptom subtypes, in terms of different different physiology, different molecular biomarkers, um, you know, it's a wonderful area to be in, and I do think we can create a whole new world for sleep medicine based on a much more personalised approach. It's a work in progress, and I think we've got to be careful as we go along to make sure it's very available to people and we can move this along as fast as we can. At the same time, I believe that the, the, these approaches are just it's the same for everything, right? Whether you get right. hypersomnia, whether you got insomnia, it's the same basic idea that this idea of personalized heterogeneity is changing medicine in every area. And I think we're in a very fortunate place in sleep that we've got a lot of patients, we can phenotype them very well, uh, and we've got a lot of sleep centers out there. and, And I do think we can move this along in a fairly rapid way. So I think it's a very exciting time to be in this field.
0: Well, thank you for your work in this important area. The era of personalized medicine is here. I hope your research will allow us to offer patients more personalized treatments. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at AASM.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at AASM.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Khosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.